I'm going to turn in the Word of God to the uh, Old Testament, the book of Genesis, so the very first book of the Bible. It's number uh, 21, page number 21 on your, uh, in your pew Bible. So it's, uh, it'll be Genesis chapter 17. I'm going to read the first 14 verses. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you, your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your descendants after you, and their generations, for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and that shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people he has broken my covenant. Now just flick over a couple of pages to Genesis chapter 22. Okay. Genesis 22, you'll know, is uh, God testing Abraham, uh, offering up his son Isaac. God provides um, a sacrifice, as you know. Uh, but just there at verse um, 15. Okay. And I want you to notice... That when we uh, get down to verse 18, I want you to notice that it moves from the plural to the singular. And keep that in mind as we'll reference it again towards the end of the sermon. But verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing, And you have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing, I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants 
as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. If your seed, moving to the singular, if you're in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Well, friends, uh, you'll need your thinking caps on this morning. Uh, we looked at the ordinance of the Lord's Supper last week. Today we come to the other ordinance, that of baptism. Last week, if you remember, I made the point that in teaching children, if uh, you know, you're showing them the little uh, photographs of little pictures of horses, and you don't distinguish uh, between a horse and a cow, or a horse and a sheep, uh, you will find that as you're going along the roads in the car, little voices calling out from the back, horsey, horsey, horsey. And in the field, it could be a, you know, a lot of cows or a lot of sheep. If you don't make the distinction, um, everything in four legs is going to be a horse. And so our, in our consideration of the Lord's Supper, we sought not only to say what it isn't, that is, we, uh, that is, we wanted to identify in a negative way the issues that fell outside the orb of the instruction of Scripture, but also we wanted to look at it positively and say what the ordinance is according to the Bible. In the same way, when you listen to people talk about baptism and particularly infant baptism, it's equally important to be clear about what it isn't and what it is. Now, it would be very easy to set up a straw man to knock it down only to have advocates of infant baptism come along and say, well, actually, we don't believe that. So, as I say, I'm going to ask you to put your thinking caps on. I'm going to ask you to be very patient with me, because what I want to do this morning is to quote from a Presbyterian perspective and set it beside the biblical perspective. And then next week, we'll come back to this topic and quote from an Anglican perspective and a Roman Catholic perspective, and then again, obviously, conclude with a, a recourse to the New Testament and what the New Testament says. And you could be sitting there saying, well, Billy, why don't you just do it all this morning? We'll see the time we get this Presbyterian perspective. You'll be thankful that we didn't do it all this morning. Uh, but before coming to uh, the Presbyterian position, we recognize, uh, like the Lord's Supper last week, we recognize that baptism is and remains a controversial subject, and that tragically and unnecessarily so, because uh, the Bible is clear on the subject. Nevertheless, uh, Christians are often divided over the Issue And in spite of me saying that the Bible is clear on the subject, I readily acknowledge that my Presbyterian friends who are committed pedo-baptists, that is, you know, baptizing infants, uh, they're able to marshal the facts uh, of their argument. And although I fail to see the logic in their argument, nevertheless, they hold to their position with uh, great conviction. They understand the Bible, except, I would say, for this matter of baptism. They are 
sincerely devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. And I mentioned the Banner of Truth conference. A lot of Presbyterian friends from Northern Ireland used to come over to that conference. We would meet there on a regular basis. And certainly there would be banter around this subject. There would be serious discussion in between the subject. Uh, but they remain convinced of where they stood, and I remain convinced of where I stood as a Baptist. Uh, that didn't unsettle us in any way because we were united in the fundamentals of the gospel. We were committed to all the issues of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this matter of the meaning and the mode of baptism, we agreed to disagree upon. We would not have uh, wanted that, um, you know, differing position. We wouldn't have wanted to put our convictions concerning baptism on a level uh, which it broke our fellowship and our desire to work and worship together. Now, you understand I say that in relationship to those who are within the framework of a believing evangelical biblical framework, uh, biblical Christianity. Outside of that framework, outside the framework of uh, believing Christianity, where people hold to the notion that baptism possesses a saving efficacy, then we would not regard that as a secondary matter, as something to be set aside. We We would regard that as a primary matter, and it would indeed lead to a break in fellowship, working together and worshipping together. Because this strikes at the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is an eternal issue in relation to who he is and who isn't saved. So in the same way with the Lord's Supper, if one attributes saving efficacy to the symbols of bread and wine, we would regard that as not merely semantics and arguments and disagreements over the meaning of words. No, friends. Uh, These issues, as I say, go right to the heart of the understanding of the gospel and how someone is saved, how someone is born again. Now, it's for clarification, basically, that I, I wanted to make that distinction between those who are within the framework of biblical Christianity and those who would be outside the framework of biblical understand uh, Christianity. So, looking at baptism from a Presbyterian perspective with a quote from a Presbyterian theologian, Donald MacLeod, who died last May. He was professor of uh, theology at the Free Church College in Edinburgh. He, he wrote a book, uh, Faith to Live By, Christian teaching that makes a difference. This is a quote. At its most fundamental, baptism signifies union with Christ. It is baptism in the name of Christ, identifying us with him and incorporating us into him. It signifies our being one with him and seals our our participation in his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. It attests and consolidates both our covenant union and our spiritual union with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. 
We live with Christ. We are built upon Christ. We are rooted in Christ. We share his status. We share his privileges. We enjoy his inheritance. We have his rights. And what do you say to that? Amen. Amen. Spot on. Baptists, he says, represent to us all the blessings that flow from our union with Christ. In identifying these, he also makes the point that baptism is a sign and a pledge of our being in covenant with God. It is, he says, quote, our public acceptance of Christ as our Lord and our public affirmation of ourselves as his servants. It is our confession that we are his property, his slaves, and his pupils. And again, we say amen to that. So far, so good. No problem. So where does it begin to get sticky? Well, when it comes to the question of who should be baptized and the mode or the method of baptism. The question is this, says Donald MacLeod, quote, Do believing parents have the right to have their faith in Christ registered in an act of baptism which includes not only themselves, but their families. In other words, should baptism embrace not only the individual parent who believes, but the whole family? Donald MacLeod says, yes, and unequivocally so, explaining that the argument revolves around the fact that when God established his covenant with Abraham, Genesis 17, Genesis 12, etc. God stipulated that the sign of the spiritual covenant should be administered to the physical seed or the physical descendant. So God establishes a spiritual covenant with Abraham. And then God says, Now, Abraham, I want you to mark your children with this physical sign, which includes them within the framework of the covenant that I am making with you. Therefore, Donna MacLeod argued baptism ought to apply to the children of believers. In which case we ask, are you saying that you ought to baptize children because it includes them within the orb of the covenant relationship which exists as a result of the faith of the parents? If so, ipso facto, are you arguing that somehow or another these children, by dint of the physical sign that marks them, are included in the spiritual dimensions to which the sign points. Is that what Presbyterians 
teach. Donald McLeod says, no. Quote, the mere fact of descent from covenant parents is itself no guarantee that someone is saved or born again. After all, it was to one such child of the covenant, namely Nicodemus, John chapter 3, that Jesus himself said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Jesus didn't say to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you're okay. You're on your way to heaven. No, you have to be born again. The sovereignty of God and the imperative necessity of the new birth overshadowed the sacrament of baptism just as they did circumcision. God knew that Esau was not elect. Yet God said, put the sign of the covenant on him. Put it on by divine appointment. The fact that he belonged to the physical seed didn't exclude him from the sign of the covenant. Says McLeod, this is solemn business. Even within Israel, God dispenses salvation sovereignly. So both the circumcised and the baptized need to be born again. Now, this is one of the proponents of Reformed Covenant theology. And he says the circumcised and the baptized need to be born again. So they are not attaching saving significance. They are not attaching saving efficacy to the baptism of children. Next obvious question. Then why do you baptize children? And that's what McLeod goes on to address. Why do I baptize children, he says? Is it because I believe that the infants of believing parents are elect? No. Is it because I believe that the infants of believing parents will one day be born again? No. Is it because I believe that one day they will accept God for themselves? No. It is because God give me an ordinance, namely put the sign of the spiritual covenant on the physical seed. That's why I do it. And at the very beginning of his, he says at the very beginning of this arrangement, God put Ishmael and Esau there to remind us that we were not to do this on the ground that we know or knew theologically how the thing worked. We were, do, we were to do it because God said it. In the case of Ishmael and Esau, it didn't seem to work. It wasn't related to any rationale of its effectiveness. It was done, and it's still done. Purely on the ground that God said it. Put the sign of my promise not only on yourselves but also on your children. Now, this is orthodox, the orthodox Presbyterian position. 
What he argues is this. Infant baptism gives to the baptized child an interest in the church of Christ as its members. So at the very heart of this discussion over baptism is the question of the visible and the invisible church. Does the church of Jesus Christ comprise those who are identified with the covenant family of God, believers and unbelievers alike? Or does the church of Jesus Christ, as we would teach, comprise a gathered body of people who have repented of their sin, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, being baptized by immersion upon profession of their faith, and they are distinguished from all believers. If you argue the former, the church comprises believers and unbelievers, the wheat and the tares growing together in one body, the logic whereby our Presbyterian friends say that they're saying is, is obvious. Not that this child is regenerate, but the child, and this is the phrase they use, this is the terminology they use, the child has a share in the property of the church. Now, I don't want to get tied up in the nitty-gritty of this, but for me, their logic in this just goes out the window. You know, to try and substantiate and anchor this in some sort of biblical framework, boy, you got to do some twists and contortions. More than an Olympic gymnast would ever do on the floor. Listen to this quote from another uh, Presbyterian theologian, James Bannerman. This is from his uh, second volume on the Church of Christ containing extensive material in which he argues for this position. See if you can make head or tail of this. Um, the, the first bit, again, I think you would say, yeah, that, that's okay. Uh, infants are not capable of faith and repentance. And baptism can be to infants no seal of the blessings which these stand connected with at the time of its administration. Now, see if you can get your head around this. But, he says, but it may become a seal of such blessing afterwards when the child has grown to years of intelligence and has superinduced upon his baptism a personal act of faith and thereby become possessed of the salvation which he had not before. Now, do you see what he's saying? The child never had salvation in baptism. He was included, he says, he was included, says Presbyterianism, within the framework and orb and benefit of the visible church and all the and all that attaches to that. And when that individual then professed faith in Jesus Christ, when that 
individual, he or she, you know, had grown to years of intelligence at that point. At that point, it validated the believing articulation of the parents on behalf of their child in his infancy. In such a case, the child who has grown to years of intelligence, back to Bannerman, that child who has grown can look back upon his baptism with water, administered in the days of his unconscious infancy and through the faith that he has subsequently received. That baptism which his own memory cannot recall and to which his own consciousness at the time was a total stranger becomes to him a seal of this new found salvation. That's why Presbyterians in baptizing adults as they do would say that baptism is a seal of their relationship to Christ. You know, and Roberta, uh, growing up in a Presbyterian church and looking through the catechism classes and baptismal classes, has come to that baptism, Baptist confi- uh, conviction, says, I want to be baptized. The, the minister says, I will baptize you. How, she said, by pouring water in your head. Well, it's not baptism. And, uh, you know, he got a bit annoyed. You can talk to her about it later. But in baptizing infants, they would say it's not a seal. It's a sign. And so he's asking for baptism as an adult. And they say when faith follows then the sign which points to Christ and his keeping is validated in the life of the professing individual. I don't want to argue for a moment or suggest for a moment that the average you know, Presbyterian is able to articulate the covenant theology position with any degree of clarity. But the question, friends, is this. Does baptism, as they teach, replace the Old Testament rites of circumcision in the same way that communion replaces the Old Testament celebration of Passover? That's the argument. In the Old Testament, you have circumcision in the Passover. In the New Testament, you have baptism taking the place of circumcision, and you have communion taking the place of Passover. Now, what you always have to say is, is there a biblical basis for your position? As I said, you take all of their position, and you lay it out before you, you know, before the, uh, the template of Scripture, And you've got to do some pretty interesting theological and biblical gymnastics in order to try and make sense of everything that they're saying and try to make it come together. So does baptism replace the Old Testament rite of circumcision? Well, in the first instance, if they were being consistent and baptism did 
replace circumcision, then why on earth baptize baby girls? Because it was only males in Abraham's household who were eligible for baptism. And if circumcision replaced baptism, isn't it interesting when you read Acts chapter 15, you have this great debate within the uh, the church on this issue of circumcising the Gentiles. And the church meets in council. And they come together to discuss the matter. (laughs) And, And some of them are saying, look, listen, here's the issue. These Gentiles, having professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are not getting circumcised and they need to get circumcised. And Paul argues, listen, brethren, this is a matter of grace. It's not a matter of works. You don't need to do this. But if the early church had made the link that our Presbyterian friends say exists, namely that circumcision is now superseded by baptism, don't you think that the Apostle Paul would have stood up in that council and he would have said, look, listen here, brothers, why on earth are you getting hot under the collar? Why are you getting worked up over this issue of circumcision? Circumcision has been replaced with baptism. So what are you getting head up about? Forget it. But he didn't do that. Why didn't he do it? Well, it's an argument, and I accept this. It's an argument from silence, and I've got to be careful. Was Jesus circumcised? Was Jesus baptized? Jesus' followers, Jesus' disciples, were they circumcised? Were they baptized? Okay. During the first century, the church continued to do both circumcision and baptism, pointing to at least the fact that the clear line of separation, the clear line of distinction between the one and the other hadn't been finally formulated in those developing decades of the early church. And it was only, you know, uh, during, uh, well, during that period of transition between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's a crossover. Now, here's an obvious question to put to our Presbyterian friends. Okay. Given, as you say, that all of this is true of infant baptism, and that baptism is a sign, brings these children uh, from a Christian home within the framework and the orb of the, of the church, question, how does that differ from my kids? Because they haven't, because they have, they haven't been sprinkled, obviously, but they have been born into a Christian family, Christian parents. And as a result of having been born into a Christian family, they have been nurtured, brought up in the training, admonition, instruction of the Lord. They have been brought up within the framework of the church. Does baptism put children in a more secure relationship with God potentially than 
unbaptized children? Because the answer to that question is crucial. If you answer yes to that question, then clearly baptism is more than a sign. There is significance to it. If you answer no to that question, then what's the big deal? Professor McLeod attempts to answer the question. He says, quote, We have to note that it's not the sign whether circumcision or baptism makes us covenant children or that puts us on a special relationship with God. We had that special relationship before we received the sign. How? Well, because of our parents. You know, when, when, when our children were in the womb, they were prayed for. And when Ezra was in the room, he was, in the womb, he was prayed for, and you prayed for him within the confines of the church. The same with little Miriam and little James. It's, a, it's an immense providence, isn't it, to be born into a Christian home? That makes sense, doesn't it? You're certainly off the head start at least. You know, there's somebody praying for you. There's somebody reading the Bible to you. There is someone uh, saying the the prayers with you at night. There is someone who's putting you into the car and bringing you within the framework of the church. That says Donald Donald McLeod is not guaranteed to you in the sign of baptism. That's already there. Before any sign is stamped on the child. Indeed, he says, the sign was put on us only because of the special relationship. We have to say, therefore, that the children of our Baptist friends are as much covenant children as our own. The fact of their not being baptized does not mean that they are not covenant children. It means that the sign of the covenant is not put on them. Now, since Donald McLeod is prepared to say that the children are in no position of difference, whether they are marked or unmarked by this sign, then we say, so where did you come up with this sign? Certainly not from the Bible, unless you're a spiritual gymnast. My friends, I have never seen the logic of the Presbyterian decision. I've read their systematic theologies on practically everything you're saying Amen. Justification by faith, amen. Adoption, you know, person of Christ, uh, the cross, etc. You're, say, you're saying amen. The, the logic, irrefutable. And then you turn a page and you come to their dealing with baptism and you think, what's happened? You know, the logic was out the window. And you're say, actually saying to yourself, is somebody else writing this? You know, it just becomes so bizarre. Now, that could be me. Not smart enough to get it. 
Maybe some of you with a more logic mind, having listened to this, maybe you're saying, I, I get it. You know, it's clear. Join the Presbyterian Church. No, I'm only joking. <laughs> okay. In which case, I would say, I would say, is it biblical? Is it biblical? You've got to go to the scripture and say, are there arguments biblical? Because the promise, as Paul makes clear, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul makes it absolutely clear it's those and only those who are in Christ, who are in the covenant. Galatians 3.16 Now to Abraham and his seed, singular. Genesis 22. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say unto seeds as of many. But as of one and your seed who is Christ. You see, the Abrahamic blessing, the Abrahamic covenant comes through the Messiah. And who's the Messiah? He is the Lord Jesus Christ. God blesses the one seed, the one descendant. And it's only Jesus Christ. Are you in Christ this morning? Have you repented of your sin? Have you come to faith in Jesus Christ? Are you baptized by immersion? Now, it can only be immersion. Because that's what the word baptize means. It doesn't mean sprinkle. It doesn't mean pour water on the head. It doesn't mean touch the forehead of a child with a bit of water. There are specific Greek words for that. None of them are ever used. It's only baptize, which means immerse. That's why we're a Baptist church. That's why when a person makes a profession of faith in Christ, we say, be baptized. Show that. You know, as McLeod says, you know, that, that sign, it, it says nothing. It shows nothing. But baptism by immersion does, as we'll see when Reuben is baptized. It shows a death and a resurrection. We haven't even brought in Romans chapter 2 about what circumcision is. What is it? Who's a true Jew? One who is circumcised in heart. One who is born again. Now, some of you are just completely out to lunch after all of this. And I'm sorry. You know, I did ask you to be patient. And you have been. You've been as patient as you can be, and some of you are going nuts, <laughs> thinking, God, I have to listen to all this again, you know, to try and follow it all. But if you are interested in, in reading around this subject and reading up on it further, I would suggest that um, you purchase what is considered to be the definitive study of the Calvinistic Reform Baptist de- Defense of our position on believers' baptism. It's a little book called Children of Abraham, a Reformed Baptist view of the covenants by David Kingdon. K-I-N-G-D-O-N, David Kingdon, published by Day One. Uh, published by a number of uh, Christian publishers, but you'll certainly think you'll get it in Day One. And that's a, 
that's a, an excellent little book if you want to read round this. So you understand now why I didn't bring in the Roman Catholic position and the Anglican position, because the Presbyterian position is so complex. So much so more simpler when it comes to the Roman Catholic and the Anglican position. Uh, but we'll come to that next week.